Well, we do, uh, I don't think I need to convince you how much we do love to talk about and discuss uh, great things, great people. I mean, we love to have the discussion of you know, who is the greatest athlete in what sport or who's the greatest politician or the greatest military strategist or the greatest inventor. I mean, think about it. We love to talk about all those things or those people that are so great. Uh, Time Magazine, every year, the man or the woman of the year. Who has influenced the world the most? Or you think about even when we turned uh, the clocks in 2000. I remember reading all kinds of these reports about the 10 most or the 100 greatest people of the last millennium. Be amazed how many people, I mean, Gutenberg, the inventor of the printing press, was, was up there in, on one survey as number one. Think about the influence he has. So it's, it's fun to talk about and to consider this idea of greatness. Well, well, Jesus wants to speak about the idea of greatness. He just wants to give us a different paradigm of discerning what is actually great. Now, this shouldn't surprise you as to where we've been. You know, in 19 and 20 of uh, Matthew, what he's doing is he's giving us an unconventional wisdom. So these disciples, they're part of the kingdom, they enter the kingdom, but with them comes their conventional wisdom of the world. And what Jesus is doing is he's just inverting it. That's what I want to do with you. I want to invert your understanding. We're bathed in a world of understanding what greatness is from the world's perspective. But Jesus here reveals something that isn't discernible by you, and it's not discoverable, but it has to be revealed to us. This new understanding of greatness. So we've already seen it on a number of levels. We've seen it in the beginning of chapter 19 with marriage. We think marriage should be easy to get out of. It's a hard thing to do. And it should be easy to exit from it. And Jesus said, no, except for infidelity, there is no exiting of marriage. Really? Well, who, who should get married then? Maybe I should stay single. We saw about the little children entering the kingdom, and yet rich people who were the trifecta of blessing, they had it all. He was young, rich. He had it all going. They, in fact, he didn't get in. Well, then who can be saved? Jesus keeps introducing. And then the parable of the workers in the vineyard, you mean the guy going out at 5 gets the same as the guy going out at 6 a.m.? Doesn't seem fair to us. Why? Because we don't understand grace. He's giving us a new understanding. Here we're going to see the same thing about the nature of greatness. He's going to give us something that is totally counterintuitive to us. It's, it's definitely a radical understanding that will not... Um, be mirrored by anything in this world. So let's read this passage, and I want to just talk about the nature of true greatness. So I'm in Matthew 20, and we'll read 17 to 28. Chapter 20. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. 
He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let me just, about greatness. So there's three things I want to share. Number one would be this, that greatness can be missed. True greatness can be missed by our self-promotion, our self-advancement, our self-assertion. True greatness can be missed. Because I've explained the inverted nature of the kingdom, you shouldn't be surprised that Jesus precedes a teaching on greatness with his own impending death. This is the third, really the fourth time Jesus has spoken about his death. But do you notice the difference in details? He's added many details here. He's spoken about being delivered over to the Gentiles. He's spoken about being mocked and scourged and crucified. Remember, mocking is what the powerful do to the weak to humiliate them. Scourging is with whips and, 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 and bones and glass in the leather, ripping the back to weaken the body for execution. Crucifixion is given no explanation. Why? Because they all knew what it was. You just take a body that's half dead, and you put it on a, a wooden beam, and you nail, it to the, you nail the hands and the feet to the beam. And then you hoist it up, drop it in the hole that's been prepared for it, and then they just, they just life ebbs away until they're dead. And it's out of this, this statement of his impending death that we're just shocked at the audacious nature of this self-assertion and self-promotion of, these, of James and John. Those were the sons of Zebedee. I mean, it's mind-bending, isn't it? I mean, what an audacious thing to ask and it shows us just a window of our heart, doesn't it? It shows us the, the absolute stubbornness and self-serving nature that we have. I mean, John Calvin called this a bright mirror of our own vanity. A bright mirror. Here it is. This is who we really are. Well, what'd they do? Well, they sent their mother up. They sent their mother up. This is the first helicopter parent you have in the scriptures. They sent their mother up to do their bidding. To, to ask Jesus this. Now, why did they do that? Why, you know, Mark's Gospel tells us that the mother's not even part of the story in Mark. Uh, Mark's Gospel reminds us that it was really James and John, they were angling for a position with Jesus. And they're using their mother. Now, their mother's name is Salome, or most scholars think that. And she happens to be, most likely, the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. So they're sending the aunt to do their bidding. James and John would have been first cousins of Jesus. So they're thinking, you know, it's all in who you know, right? So let's send the aunt to do our bidding. I think they also sent the mother because if there was a blowback, if there was any kind of rejection and any kind of, in, you know, Jesus becoming indignant, well, it would fall on the mother and not on them. I think they saw kind of a, an angle. You know, they saw the door crack a little to get in, Number one and two places. Number one place, of course, was probably occupied by Peter. 
You know, Peter has a primacy all through Scripture. But, you know, we've seen in 16 and 18 and 19, Peter's taken some hits from Jesus. I mean, he's been rebuked a few times, and I imagine they sensed, hey, you know what? Peter's been taking a few hits. This is our time to strike. This is our time to move. I mean, James and John were called at first, just like Jesus was in Matthew 4, and James and John were also on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter. So they're thinking, we'll get him out of first, you and me, one and two, and Peter can swing around and he can occupy the third space for a while. It shows you this absolute ambition in religious disguise. It shows you the wickedness of the heart. This is why Calvin again said that, that ambition, unbridled ambition, is like a concealed flame. You conceal a flame, you tend to burn things down. And that's what it's going to do. Now, I think all of us here, we read a passage like this, and we can all admit, whether you're Christian or not, this is a struggle for us. Across time, across races, across professions, across well, you know, wherever you are on the wealth spectrum, we all struggle with wanting to be first, with wanting to be well thought of, with wanting to be appreciated, with wanting to be respected. We have this great desire. All of us do. I mean, let me just ask you some questions as an assessment over how much you love to be promoted. If you, and I've asked you this before, but it always works. If you see a picture of the family, who do you look at first? You look at yourself. Everybody does. I, I, I mean, when, when you're in a conversation, how often do you steer it back to something you've done or an experience you've had? I, I mean, when you, when you hear someone receive praise and recognition, do you feel threatened? Do you feel indignant? Do you feel resentful that you weren't mentioned? When you're in a fight or a conflict, you have to win every time. I mean, when you walk into a room, do you assess who is there and where you are in some pecking order of importance and value? Do you ask questions more or do you speak more? When you leave a conversation with people, do you ever assess how much you spoke about yourself? Or how much do you really know about the other person? It's amazing how absolutely self-driven we are. Ambitious to be number one. And let me tell you, this isn't just certain family dynamics. This is dangerous. It's dangerous because if I'm number one seeking my interests, if I'm committed to my interests and my ambitions and my promotion, I'm going to collide with you because you're doing the same thing. And what happens is it begins to disintegrate the nature of our relationships. It begins to erode. We begin to feel alienated. And the only relationships that are vital for me are the ones that are promoting me. And when they stop promoting me, I don't need them anymore. And so you can just see this disintegration leading to conflict and envy and division. And now, of course, with the Internet, with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, those are fine social mediums, but what they do is they put this on steroids. And now I get to see everybody's great life and how my life never seems to compare to their life. Now, I know Facebook is basically 85% a masquerade. I get that. And you get that cognitively, but it still bothers you. The people that tell me the despair they feel watching everybody else live lives of seeming perfection, even though it's all paper mache, they seemingly live these lives of perfection, and it leaves us lower and lower and lower. 
it, it's, it's going to be troubling to the nature of our relationships, always putting ourselves first. Now, this isn't just for the seculars. It's not for the non-Christian here. It's also for us, the Christian. I mean, this idea of self-promotion has entrenched itself in the church and in the Christian faith. Are you aware to the degree that you promote yourself? Are you aware over the nature that it kind of lurks in the dark corners of your heart? I mean, it's among pastors, missionaries, Bible teachers, Christian moms, Christian dads, want to be appreciated, want to be thanked, frustrated when we're not. Just read a quick article a friend sent me. Eugene Peterson is a, a current scholar. He was a pastor, and he kind of is a, a pastor to pastors. He writes a lot for pastors. And he, um, he says, uh, the greatest problem facing the church is the ambition of people in church, that they continue to grade things based upon a worldly standard, not a scriptural standard. That's what I'm talking about right now, this idea of pride among us. Thomas Hooker was a Puritan. In fact, he was the founder of the colony of Connecticut back in the 16th century, is when he was born and lived, of course, into the mid to late part of the 17th century. Here's what he writes. Writes, he says, pride is a vice which cleaves so fast unto the heart of men that if we were to strip ourselves off all faults one by one, we should undoubtedly find the very last and hardest one to put off is pride. Can I, can I ask you, can I implore you to confess this before God? That you identify it as an enemy of your soul? that you would confess it, that you would fight it in your, in your soul, that you would, you would work to confess it to God, to confess it to your spouse or a close friend, ask for prayer. I mean, and, and, and not just to confess it, but also to begin honoring Christ and his perfect humility, that he didn't regard a quality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, but that you would confess that and then turn to Christ. You know, Robert... Murray McShane, you've heard me quote the Scottish pastor of the 19th century. He said, for every one look you take at yourself, take 10 of Christ. Take ten of, spend 10 times on Christ and his perfect humility versus the one look that you take of yourself. This is a struggle for all of us here. I don't even need to make greater application. You know exactly what I'm saying. We see ourselves in these two men. The door is ajar, I'm going through it. That's how I'm going to get the accolades and the recognition I need. So, so be mindful of that. Honor, worship Christ. Let me employ you. Think about his humility. Take 10 looks at him. Okay, the second thing we see about greatness is, okay, you can miss it now. If, if we continue to walk in self-promotion, you will miss the greatness that I think Jesus is actually implying we ought to go after. The second thing we see, and this is a little bit more sobering, true greatness is found only after suffering. True greatness is found only after suffering and hardships and trials. That suffering, your suffering, is a prerequisite to find the greatness that God has for us in his kingdom. It's a prerequisite. You see this because after 
uh, Salome, or the mother of James and John, asks for these seats of honor at the right and the left. Jesus says to her, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. You, are you prepared to drink from the cup that I'm going to drink? In other words, they weren't getting it. They weren't understanding this pattern in Scripture. You see it in 17 and 19. He's going to be mocked, scourged, and crucified. Oh, and then be raised on the third day. There's a pattern of trials before thrones. There's a pattern of the cross before the crown. Now, folks, they're believers. They believed in Jesus. I mean, the fact that they're going to him, assuming he has a throne, evidences faith that they see Christ as king. They believed in Matthew 19, 28. Remember, just two weeks ago, we spoke about it. Remember how the rich young ruler went away because he didn't want to part with his goods? And so what did Peter say? Peter said, well, we've left everything. What are you going to give to us? And Jesus said to them, well, you're going to be on 12 thrones ruling over the tribes of Israel. They were going to get thrones. But notice, they wanted the two best thrones. You, you know, you got 12 thrones all equal. Give me the two best. And Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't understand that suffering precedes it. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, are you prepared to drink from the cup that I drink? What's this cup? Well, the cup is really a metaphor in Scripture. It's an expression, and you find it in Psalm 75, Isaiah 57. And the cup speaks of God's wrath being poured out on the world, being poured out on sin and rebellion and opposition to God, that God's bringing his righteous judgment down upon a world that rejects him and is living in absolute defiance to him. And so when Jesus says, are you prepared to drink from the cup that I will drink from? Jesus is speaking about the suffering. He's going to bear the very wrath of God for our sins. He's going to be our substitute in our place. And Jesus knows that he's going to bear the wrath of God over all of our sins. And you're going to see this later on in Matthew 26. Jesus is in the garden and he's overwhelmed with this idea of bearing his wrath. Think about it. If Jesus bears the wrath of God, Jesus is going to be alienated for the first time ever from God. It's the mystery of this triune God somehow being severed, as it were, while he bears the wrath of God. You know, in all of Jesus' prayers, he always addresses God as Father, except for the prayer on the cross, the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't address God as Father. Why? Because he's bearing the sin. He's now an enemy of the Father. In our place. Bearing our shame and guilt and sin. See, this is the cup he has to drink. Can you imagine that? I, I cannot imagine drinking to the dregs the full wrath of God over our sin. He says, are you able? Now, Jesus, when he asks James and John, and really all 12, are you prepared to drink that cup? They're not going to bear the wrath of God over our sins, but they're going to bear the suffering and the sorrow that comes from being associated with this Christ. And Jesus is saying, are you willing to forego success, prosperity, and comfort to follow me? Are you willing to suffer for my name's sake? Are you willing to undergo the, the hatred and rejection and ridicule you may face? Of course, you know, again, another snapshot of our souls. Yes, we're able. Yep, yep, I'm ready. 
I'm ready. Now, the irony, of course, is that, you know, when Jesus was in the garden, wrestling with God over the cup, he only took three with him. And two of them were, that's right, James and John. And what were they doing when Jesus was wrestling over the cup that they were so quick to say, yes, we'll drink from it? They were sleeping. They They couldn't even pray with him. They were sleeping. Now, thankfully, we're like them. Just in our own strength of flesh, we have no hope. But God perseveres with us. And these two will be faithful, and they will drink from the cup. Uh, James, of course, was the first martyr in Acts 12. He died at the hands of Herod. And John, John was the last to die. Uh, He was tortured, and tradition holds, put in a pot of boiling oil, miraculously, by God's grace, survived, exiled to the island of Patmos, and died there. But he was exiled there for his testimony of Jesus Christ. They drank from the cup. Greatness follows suffering. Now, like them, we don't like this message. I mean, like them, we want the combat badge before doing combat, right? We want, as Luther said, we want to be glorified before we're crucified. Or John Piper says it this way, the first commandment is to love thyself. That's the first commandment of the world. You won't find that in Scripture, but it's the one commandment nobody argues with. I want to love myself. We don't want a life that has potholes and obstacles and hindrances. This is why the prosperity preachers are so rich, because they sell their stuff so well. The destiny of the Son of Man was a cross before a crown, and we, following him, are called to drink from his cup. That means that if you are a disciple of Christ and you're going to heaven, you will suffer. You will. In some measure, I don't know that it will be persecution in this place and in this time, but there will be ridicule, there'll be mockery, there'll be rejection, maybe in your own family, maybe in the marketplace. Now, you can stay low under the radar screen, not say anything, and and eventually I think the Spirit of God will convict you out of that position, but eventually you're going to face some degree of suffering. And not only that, if it's not from the outside world, you should be facing suffering within. What do I mean by that? Well, we all suffer the pain of temptation. And we all struggle with this, you know, loving the pleasures that are offered before us. You know, wickedness as it drapes around in beautiful clothing promises me, it promises me all kinds of pleasure. And I've got to say no to sin. Well, that's painful. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And yet to say no to wickedness and to say no to sin does cause grief on your soul. I want to look at that, or I want to get that. And yet God's Spirit prevents you. You're fighting sin in your soul, and there is a suffering there. You're asked to sacrifice something for another. There's a suffering there. So we will drink from this cup in some measure. I mean, we're told that. Paul says in Philippians 1.29, it has not only been granted to you to believe, but also to suffer for my sake. Or Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, he says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see the same order there. I want to share in his sufferings that I may attain in his resurrection. So that's the nature of this. This is difficult. Are you being a steward of the times that you've suffered? When you suffer, is it simply, I've got to get out of this bucket of pain I'm in? Or can I challenge you to maybe begin to steward that? In other words, God, this suffering for your glory, not suffering for being a fool. Peter tells us five times in his first letter, don't suffer for foolishness sake, but to suffer in following Christ achieves greatness. God looks at that. He looks at the saint who suffers under the name of Christ, and he says, that's great. That's great. Now, that's not what the world says. Greatness is a life without hindrance, a life without limit. It's a limitless life. Do everything you can. Get as much as you can. Enjoy everything you can. That's not great from God's perspective. But to walk faithfully, suffering both the internal conflict that we have in fighting sin and fighting the persecution or the struggle or the rejection that we have, that's great in God's eyes. So true greatness can be missed if you're always promoting yourself, and true greatness will follow and only follow suffering. That's a hard message. It really is a hard message. Okay, third thing we see about suffering, or sorry, about greatness. True greatness is measured by your sacrificial service. It's measured by your sacrificial service. So if you want to discern how great you may be in God's eyes, we want to look at the nature of our sacrificial service. Now let me try to explain this a little bit. You see Jesus compare this in verse 25. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus is going to teach us by way of contrast here. He's saying, so if you're the 12 disciples, he's saying, okay, you know how the Gentile rulers, you know how they operate. You do. I mean, we all, you know, if you were at that time, you would have known, you would have lived under Roman rule. You would have known their power and their pomp and their pageantry. You would know their authority. You would know their heavy-handedness. They're great ones. The ones that they deem great, greatness in their book, is to rule with an iron fist, to have no pushback, no blowback. They rule, and they rule hard. They're arrogant. They're bold. You know, in Roman culture at this time, humility was a vice. To be proud, even arrogant and bold, was a good thing. And, and it was promoted. You know, think, think in our day, think Shark Tank. You know, you, you get these, you get these well-versed, and that's a show about people starting businesses, and they come before, you know, these big dogs in various industries, and they just basically tear apart these different business proposals that are offered. But they're, they're cocky, they're bold, they're arrogant, they, they kind of at least portray an image of knowing just about everything in business. And, and that scene is, wow, I want to follow that guy. And Jesus said, you know how they do that. Now listen to these words. And, and by the way, this is in the church. This is in the church. As you look through the history of the church, and, and Carol and I living in Europe for a number of years, I mean, you go to the cathedrals, I mean, the pomp and the pageantry of the church. I mean, the, 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 well, we don't have big thrones up here, although I know people like to sit in these chairs. But, but when you go to some of these older cathedrals, I mean, they have colossal thrones and, and, and just massive cathedrals and gold, gold. They have the flowing robes and the banners. And, and when the bishops and the priests would come in, I mean, it was like a parade. 
And they would come in. And look what Jesus says in, in 26. He says, it shall not be so among you. I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, let this ring in your ear. It is not to be so among you. Among my people, it shall not be. Now, let me tell you, Jesus is not, let me repeat this, Jesus is not saying, don't pursue greatness. I think he's saying, pursue greatness. He's saying, just don't pursue that greatness. Pursue the greatness that I define for you. And that's when he says, whoever wants to be great, let him be a servant. That word for servant is diakonos or deacon. You know, it was a person who did the menial stuff. You know, cooked the food, cleaned the table, watched the kids, kind of made the place run, even though behind the scenes, they weren't really seen unless they did something wrong or if something wasn't attended to. And he, and he follows it with a deeper expression. He says, whoever wants to be first has to be the slave of all. That Greek word is doulos. It's, it's, a, it's the lowest of the economic rung. You didn't even have rights. You were owned by a master. You didn't have the ability to say, I would like to. That was never coming out of your mouth. The master dictated to you what you did, what you thought, how you acted. And so Jesus is saying here, it's remarkable. He's saying, hey, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, be a servant, be a slave. In other words, live a life of self-denial for the benefit of another. It's really important. It's for the benefit of another, for their betterment, for their greater love for Christ, for their service. And then Jesus does this. Now that's brutal, just to hear that. But then look what he does in 28. He brings this comparative term. He says, just even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Just Now hang with me here for a minute. Just as the Son of Man. Now you know that expression, Son of Man. It's used 88 times in the Gospels. It's only used by Jesus about Jesus. Nobody ever applies it to Jesus. It's never applied to anybody else. Only Jesus says it about Jesus. Now, the Son of Man came from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Let me read for you. He says, I saw in the night vision, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. That's God. So Daniel is seeing a vision. One like a Son of Man goes before God Almighty and was presented before God. And to him, the Son of Man, to him, was given dominion, glory, a kingdom, that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him, the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall never be destroyed. Jesus, the first thing he says, kingdom of God's at hand. He calls himself the Son of Man. He's the one that's gone before the Father. And he's been given nations, and he's been given languages, and he's been given peoples to serve him. And yet the Son of Man has come not to be served. Think about that. Just, just let, that, let that weight land on you. The one who is all deserving of service has taken off the robes of glory and come to serve you and me. He's come to serve us. Can you believe that? I mean, he's, he, he leaves the wealth of all the worship of all the angels, forever praising him. He's enjoying the fellowship of the Father and the Spirit with himself. 
And he leaves that, takes a body, is born in this humble fashion. He lives in a backwater town with no-name parents. He, he ministers not in coliseums and not in stadiums. He touches people, he talks to them, he walks with them. He's a no-name guy serving us at every level, even to the point of death. I mean, he came to be served. And greatness is measured by that sacrificial service. And he uses himself as an example. He is the greatest one, by far. But he doesn't just do that. If we were just to look at Jesus as an example to follow, we'd miss the gospel. Because look at the second half of 28. And to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life. Now you know ransom, by the way. Ransom is not a theological term. It was a marketplace term. It was used in the marketplace that a sum would be paid to deliver a prisoner of war or a slave. And they would be free because payment would be made for them. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving my life to make payment for them to be free. I'm giving my life. The the idea of substitution for our redemption, our forgiveness. You hear the language of Isaiah 53 when Isaiah writes, He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has borne all of our shame, guilt, and grief to bring us and reconcile us to God. So he's come to serve us by paying the ultimate price of reconciling us to God. This is the whole comfort of the gospel. Even if you're not a Christian here, to try to follow Jesus as an example will just lead to frustration. You cannot follow him as an example apart from worshiping him and believing him as a savior. And when we speak about believing Jesus as a savior, what I mean by that is simply this, that the Christian is marked by having come to a place in his life where we're no longer promoting ourselves before God. That we're no longer saying that, yeah, I think God would accept me because, you know what, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't slept with another woman, I've been fair, I've been a moral citizen, I've been upright, I mean, I go to church, I do a ministry. As soon as we start marshalling what we have done in some measure to please God, you're not a Christian. What you are, you're presenting yourself. Here I am, God, take me, I'm yours. Look at all that I've done. And yet the Christian is, is known by his immediate humility to say, no, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. God, i got nothing to say, but here's my sin, take it, please redeem me. I need a substitute, I need a savior. That's what the Christian is. And folks, if you can't say that, then you need to rethink what it means to be a Christian. It's this humbling, that's why Jesus said, the first beatitude, the gateway to the teaching of the kingdom, Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the beginning of everything good and greatness awaits you. But it begins with a recognition. If I don't have Christ as a substitute, I'm toast. I'm absolute toast. I have no chance. But if you're looking at what you've done, even the way you've improved by hanging around Christians, it won't save you. So greatness is measured by sacrificial service. What does sacrificial service look like? Let me just give you two points. I'm going to stop. Sacrificial service is informed by the gospel. The gospel is a picture of one great one coming and dying for another. 
So our service is sacrificial. It's great when we deny ourselves for the benefit of another, that we're seeking to benefit another. And I would say to you, one that is less than you. Service rendered to other people that can pay you back and give you all kinds of accolades, I'm not saying that's bad. I just don't think it has the ring of the gospel. Service to others out of sacrifice and out of self-denial has the picture of the gospel because you're dying to yourself in order to better them. That's what the gospel looks like. I mean, it's the way you pray. Do you pray for other people? Do you just pray for your own needs? Or will you spend time agonizing with God that Christ be formed in other people? Do you pray that way? God be formed in the people of this church. Or the way you give your money. Do you ever deny yourself anything in order to give to another? I know many of you give, but many of us give just out of the cream. We scrape the top off. We still get everything we want, but we don't, we don't dig deeper down. We don't give. We don't say, I'm not going to go, I'm going to not eat lunch for the next five days. Turn it into prayer, take the money, and move it into a place or a person that has needs. Is there a place? Do you see self-sacrifice in your giving? Or not just in your giving, how about your ministry? Do you know the gift? Every Christian here has a gift that's to be used in the betterment of people in here. So the gifts come vertically and they're applied horizontally, right? And so do you have a gift that's been identified that you have engaged in the ministry of this church over? Or do you just come and there's no gifts really being exercised to one another in the church? It demands self-sacrifice, no question about it. You've got to give time, effort. You may deal with people you don't like. That's the gospel. That's it. Or, the, or your spouse. You know, men to women, women to men. Does your spouse see you sacrifice? This is what I always ask parents who are being, uh, dedicating children. How would your wife know the gospel by what you sacrifice over? And how would he know the gospel in your life by how you sacrifice? You know, th- that's, how, that's greatness in God's eye. Or, or friends, among friends, conversationally. Do you spend time talking about other people? I mean, do you ask more? Are you slow to speak and quick to listen? And, and your questions are penetrating at their soul, not just the peripheral stuff, not just the temporal stuff. That's fine, it has its place, but something a little deeper. That is greatness in God's eyes. But that's the rub. You know that, but we can't do that. And so greatness in service is not just informed by the gospel, it's inspired by the gospel. You have to think upon Christ. Let me promise you, the more you contemplate Jesus Christ dying for you, the ultimate act of sacrificial service that was great in God's eyes, God will fill you with grace. Listen, when you contemplate on the gospel, when you ponder Christ, you will be given grace and strength. There are many situations that I'm faced with that, to be honest with you, I don't necessarily want to do. And I have to think, but he did that for me. It motivates me. It humbles me. It doesn't just inspire work, but it purifies my work. It it helps me to do things, not with the hope that you'll thank me for it, but that he'll think it's great. It purifies and inspires. You have to contemplate. You have to ponder. This Jesus came from heaven, took flesh, lived my life, bore my sins, died my death, and will come back and retrieve me to himself 
and drag me to the Father and say, this is one of ours. That motivates me to serve. So greatness is ours for the Christian. But it can be missed if you move in self-promotion. Check yourself on that. Greatness will follow suffering. Let's steward our suffering. And greatness is measured by sacrificial service. Let me pray. Um, let's take a minute. We'll have silent reflection. Just consider these things. Perhaps confess your sins. Perhaps ask God for grace. And then uh, Keith is going to close us.